welcome to the History of European Theatre podcast. My name is Philip and thanks for joining me on this journey through millennia of theatrical history. Episode 15, Aristophanes, Comedy, Satire, War. Last time, I concluded with the genre of tragedy with an attempt to understand the Bacchae, no easy thing with such a fantastical, esoteric tale. In this episode, we move away from Athenian tragedy and onto comedy, but that doesn't mean that things get any easier to unpick, or that the Athenian playwrights took these plays any less seriously. Comedy and tragedy are two strands of the same art form, but there is little crossover between them. We have no surviving plays that showed tragedians wrote comedy, or that comic playwrights also wrote tragedy. The only crossover we can say is the way that tragedians also wrote the satire plays that accompanied their other works. But there is some crossover in form and content, and it's clear that the playwrights moved in the same artistic and social sphere, regardless of the specialisation. Origins of comedy, like those of tragedy, are in the rural seasonal celebrations that were held throughout Attica in the years preceding the 5th century BCE. As part of these harvest festival or fertility rite celebrations, it's thought that joyful singing and comic skits were performed for the general amusement of the villagers. These were largely plotless and, we think, improvised. It seems likely that a lot of buffooning around, jests and crude jokes were the order of the day, and, given the later developments, ridicule of those in authority is likely to also have been part of the entertainment. As the dithyram developed and became formalised into tragedy, comedy also became part of formalised celebrations, but initially was kept as part of the minor festivals until being accepted into the Dionysia in later years. The exact development in relationship to tragedy and the religious aspect of the festivals is uncertain, but it seems likely that the major festivals could not accept comedy until its religious affiliations and significance had reduced over the years. Comedy itself then becomes divided into three types, conventionally known as old, middle and new comedy. The basic definition for old comedy is that it's satiric in nature and tends to deal with subjects of a political or social concern. The plays include much sexual innuendo and scatological humour. This distinguishes the works of Aristophanes from the following phase, middle comedy, which is a difficult category to define as we only have fragments from that period. And, in effect, it covers anything later than Aristophanes and before Menander, who's the exponent of new comedy. I think a better definition is to say that old comedy featured the representation and ridicule of public figures on stage in a highly personalised manner, whereas new comedy removed this aspect entirely and focused on general aspects of society. Another notable feature was that old comedy still made use of the chorus, whereas it had become very diminished through the middle period and into new comedy. Middle comedy, as far as we can tell, continued a slow move towards new comedy that, in fact, starts towards the end of Aristophanes' career as a dramatist. We'll look at these distinctions and new comedy in later episodes of the podcast, so for now, enough to say on new comedy that it became focused on the domestic and the misadventures of everyday life. It's been described as the great-grandfather of both modern situation comedy and comedy of manners, so, in a sense, a gentler, safer type of comedy. A scaling down and smoothing off of what we see in old comedy. 
By the time Aristotle came to define comedy in the politics at about 335 BCE, he called it the representation of laughable people involving some blunder or ugliness that does not cause pain or disaster. I think that's insufficient for our purposes, as it speaks more to new comedy than old, but it's interesting to note that only 50 years after Aristophanes had died, the view of the nature of comedy had already changed to move away from the biting satire of old comedy. About 50 playwrights working in the old comedy genre from about 508 BCE to about 380 BCE have been identified. The very earliest references are to Caesarian of Megaris, who took the native comedy of the local village festival and transported it to Athens and formalised the country jesting into something for the chorus to recite or sing. All of this was intended more for chanting than acting, and none of it is recorded in writing. In fact, we only have one iambic line from Caesarian that survives, and this is iambic poetry, not drama, so solid evidence is next to non-existent. Only slightly later, we know of Epicramus of Cos. Again, only fragments of work survive, but he's mentioned by Aristotle in the Poetics as the inventor of comic plots, and by Plato and Socrates, among many others. Socrates styled Epicramus as the king of comedy, and in so doing, put him alongside Homer, whom he called the king of tragedy. The fragments we have suggest he wrote between 30 and 40 comedies, which covered both comic takes on heroic figures and comedy based around the habits and beliefs of rural society. Plato also wrote comedy, although none survive, and some ancient commentary suggests that in some cases he relied heavily on the earlier works by Epicramus. Formis is also mentioned by Aristotle as one of the originators of comedy where he's credited with introducing actors wearing long robes and coloured silks to decorate the stage. There are only eight surviving fragments or titles from his work. The first recipients of laurels at the Dionysia for comedy are Sionides and Magnus, in 487 BCE and 472 BCE respectively, but little else is known about them or their works. Cratinus recorded a series of eight victories at the Dionysia from the mid-450s BCE onwards, and three victories at the Linnea are also evidenced. Records show he was still competing in 423 BCE when he was aged about 97, so another long and prolific career. He seems to have been a lively character. There are various accusations about cowardice and lax morality in his character, but these are thought not to have much foundation. The charge of an intemperate lifestyle, however, is given more credence as Aristophanes and other writers are thought to refer to this. Cratinus was an old man by the time Aristophanes would have been aware of him, but as he wrote well into his old age, it seems reasonable to assume Aristophanes was well aware of his work. Despite the lack of extant scripts, he's considered, along with Aristophanes, one of the greats of old comedy. The third great of old comedy is Eupolis. Sources differ as to the exact dates, but his first play is recorded as being produced in about 430 BCE, so very contemporary with the emergence of Aristophanes. It's likely that his first productions were at the Linnea Festival, where, it seems, the entry criteria allowed novice playwrights to hone their craft before getting entry to the Dionysia. There are fragments from a play called The Men from Prospalta, which includes close quotes from Antigone by Sophocles and a reference to the partner of Pericles. That's the relationship that got him into some problems with the city elders. 
So it seems likely that the play was in some way targeted at Pericles and would have been written while he was still alive. There are records and fragments of 19 other plays, some of which include the type of sharp jibe against political figures and fellow dramatists that we see in the plays of Aristophanes. It's also recorded that although initially friends with Aristophanes, the two later fell out and serious accusations of plagiarism were made between them. The biography of Aristophanes is very short as we know virtually nothing about his life, and much of what we do think we know comes from the self-referencing passages in his plays. We can say that he was born about 446 BCE and died about 386 BCE. We don't know anything of his parentage except that his father was called Philippus, and his family resided in the deme at the heart of Athens, which included the site of the Acropolis. The deme was an area of city governance, like a local council. There were five demes that made up the city of Athens within the city walls, and about 140 demes in total to make up the city, its suburbs and the satellite towns. Each one functioned like a polis in miniature. Each deme had a governing magistrate, the demokos, and held powers to collect and spend taxes and generally organise the running of the deme. There were also civic, military and religious posts held as part of the deme structure. These civic divisions were established in 508 BCE under city reforms that replaced the old rules of citizenship which depended on membership of established family clans. The new deme system defined citizenship by enrolment in the citizen lists that were maintained for each deme. Some of the suburban deems were as large as significant towns. Eleven of the 40 known plays that Aristophanes is credited with survive in complete or almost complete form. These are the only complete examples we have of the old comedy genre. It seems that he started writing and wanting to produce plays at a very young age, but he was too young to be allowed to produce at the festival, so an arrangement was made for the play to be directed and produced by a friend or colleague called Callistratus. Similar arrangements were also made for his next two plays, with either Callistratus or another dramatist called Philonides directing. It was an arrangement that was also repeated with some of the later plays. As we know, it was the norm for playwrights to produce and direct their own plays, and sometimes perform in them, so this does seem to be a preference of Aristophanes in particular, and a conscious decision to have alternative directors. However, it adds a complication when we're looking at the biographical details. Anything we take from the plays that we know were directed by the others could refer to them rather than Aristophanes. The first play, The Banqueters, was produced in the fourth year of the Peloponnesian War, so at the time when Athens was ambitious and believing that the empire could be expanded and that they would export the Athenian way of life to all of Attica and maybe beyond. The play is now lost, but recorded as winning second prize at the Dionysia in 427 BCE. His next play, The Babylonians, is also lost, but went one better and won first prize. This in spite of the controversy it caused. The festival it was attended by foreign ambassadors and other dignitaries, so when the play showed the cities of the Dalian League as slaves, providing Athenian wealth and comfort, there must have been some uneasy shifting in the front row seats and diplomatic smoothing after the event. Cleon, a prominent general at the time, accused the play of being a slander against Athens, and this may have gone as far as the courtroom. The records are not clear, but it's notable that in his third play, The Acarnians, that Aristophanes is careful to make the distinction between the polis in general and the individuals who are the target of his satire. 
In that play, there's a reference to Cleon dragging Aristophanes into court over the last play. As this production was directed by Callistratus, we can't be certain if that means that Aristophanes or Callistratus were taken to court by Cleon, but perhaps that detail is a moot point, as it seems likely that the author or the producer or the production in general was taken to court because of its content. Cleon features as a character in the plays by Aristophanes, and many of his satiric criticisms are aimed at him, so a short word here on his background. He came to power in Athens after the death of Pericles, and he was a very different leader. Pericles was a populist and a military veteran, but also, through his mother's family, a member of the city aristocracy. Even in the democratic times, the city was still essentially ruled by members of the old noble families. These were the people who had the desire, the education and the money to get voted in by the demos to senior positions, and, no doubt, still saw it as their right to rule even if they did have to go through this popular vote business to get there. Cleon was different. As far as we know, he did not have any noble ancestors or inherited land, which was the usual source of wealth at the time. His family wealth was based on trade. His father was a tanner or seller of leather goods. Whichever it was, it was a good business. When Cleon inherited from his father, he was able to use the income to become a chorgos, the producer of plays at the festivals, which you'll remember was a role that could incur a lot of expense. And then he launched a career in politics. Pericles dominated the political scene until his decision to pursue a defensive strategy and the war began to go wrong. He had expected Sparta to realise that they could not take Athens and would also get pressure from their allies for assistance as the Athenian fleet was busy harassing them. He'd failed to anticipate the destruction caused by the land battles around Athens and the hardship that that caused. The plan seemed to be going nowhere except into a protracted stalemate. Financial irregularities were used to force him out of office in 430 BCE. He managed to regain power by using his vast personal wealth less than a year later, only to die in the plague shortly after. Cleon used the political uncertainties of the time to argue with others for a more aggressive strategy. Coincidentally, the Spartans had just agreed a treaty with the leaders of Lesbos, which was a privileged member of the Dalian League. Lesbos went into revolt, but it was quickly put down by an Athenian force when Sparta failed to send any support. The assembly at Athens, at Cleon's suggestion, decided that severe punishment was needed and the assembly adopted the resolution to kill all the men on Lesbos and sell the women and children into slavery. But before the decision could be carried out, the Athenians started to regret their decision. Cleon argued for the decree to be carried out, but lost by a narrow margin and in the end only the leaders of the revolt were executed. This was still about a thousand men, so not that lenient. These events marked the end of moderation in Athens and the new politics promoted by Cleon and the generals focused on economising resources while getting as much as they could out of their allies. The tribute paid was trebled over the next few years which enabled Cleon to improve the city defences and, among other things, increase the payment to jurors in the law courts who then became sympathetic towards him. He was also able to finance the establishment of a fort in Pylos that could be used to control some reluctant subjects of Sparta in the area and damage the Spartan economy. The Spartans had no choice but to attack and the resulting Athenian victory forced them into a peace treaty. But Cleon persuaded the assembly that such a treaty was unreliable and now was the time to push on with the fight. 
Cleon was now at the height of his powers, and Aristophanes at his most critical in The Knights, a stance which caused him some issues, as railing against a successful war leader was not a popular position. The Spartan response, when it came, was to disrupt the northern, less well-defended Athenian colonies, and the war ground on. It was the loss of these colonies that made Cleon sack Thucydides, who then had time to go off and write his detailed history of the war. By 423 BCE, everyone was weary of the war, except, it seems, Cleon, who only reluctantly agreed to a truce. That truce only lasted for a year, and in 422 BCE, Cleon was elected as Strategos, a general, combining a military role with his political role for the first time. He led a force to recover Amphipolis, a colony in the northeast, and had military and diplomatic success in various towns and cities as he made his way there. While preparing to besiege the city, the Spartan forces, much smaller than the Athenian numbers, attacked and both Cleon and the leading Spartan general were killed in the battle. Some, including Thucydides, saw this as the death of the two men who were standing in the way of peace. With a bit more historical distance, we can perhaps see that a further peace under Cleon would probably have been possible and may have been a better peace than the one that was negotiated in 421 BCE, which only lasted for three years, but as things worked out, it was the beginning of the end of the Athenian Golden Age. So although the criticism of Cleon through the satire carried on throughout Aristophanes' career, it does not seem to have had any significant effect. Cleon's rise was spectacular, and even from a position of high power, he was not able, or did not see the need, to put a stop to the satire. For those like Aristophanes, who were against prolonging the war, he was seen as relentless in his pursuit of it at any cost. Following The Banqueters, and a couple of other very early plays, three victories at the Linnea are recorded, and The Frogs has the unique distinction of being repeated at a later festival. His oldest son, Araros, was a comic poet and probably involved in the production of his father's plays, particularly two that were produced posthumously. Two other sons were possibly also playwrights and were victorious at later Linnea festivals. In Plato's Symposium, there's a record of a dinner party conversation between Aristophanes and the philosopher Socrates. This was an event supposedly attended by Plato when he was a boy, and although that timeline is correct, it's not clear if this is something he actually witnessed or is put together from other reports or is entirely from his imagination. This is how it goes. Some years earlier, Aristophanes had ridiculed Socrates in his play The Clouds, and during dinner, another guest quotes from the play to see if he can get a rise out of either of these two great men. Plato portrays both as calm and jovial about the whole business, suggesting that they were on friendly terms despite the impact of the play, able, as it were, to maintain a professional difference. Plato himself is attributed with the epitaph to Aristophanes, where he compares the poet's soul to a shrine to the three graces, goddesses of charm, beauty and creativity. So it seems he was quite a fan, really. There's little else we can glean about his character and life. Towards the end of his career, a period that coincided with the defeat by Sparta and subsequent curtailing of the city's freedoms and wealth, he was at first silent and then turned to comedy that did not satire politics. It was a move towards the middle and later style of comedy. Two of his plays were produced posthumously by his sons, but 
Unusually, there's no legend about the manner of his death, which happened when he was in his 60s, relatively young by the standards of the playwrights that we've known so far. As mentioned, 11 plays survive in complete or near-complete form, and looking at these chronologically, we start with his third play. The Acarnians was presented in 425 BCE, winning the first prize at the Linnea. In it, Dicolopolis is frustrated by the inertia in Athens as the political leaders and ambassadors worry more about their personal comforts than peace negotiations. When he is offered the opportunity of a private peace treaty with the Spartans, he gratefully accepts, paying eight drachma. He holds a private Dionysia outside his home to celebrate, but is soon set upon by war veterans who hate the idea of peace. They refuse his rational arguments, but he pleads with them to listen to right and justice, recalling how Cleon took him to court over last year's play. He prepares to make a big speech against the war, and goes to the house of Euripides next door to borrow a beggar's costume. So, dressed as a tragic beggar, he makes a speech against the war, essentially arguing that it started for no good reason and is perpetuated by profiteers. Half the chorus are persuaded by his arguments, half are not. Arguments ensue between the opposing groups and order is only restored by the war general Lamachus, who is then questioned about his support for the war. The chorus then engage in a section of the comedy known as the Parabasis. This is where the actors leave the stage and the chorus leader gives a speech that allows the playwright to speak directly to the audience, usually in his own voice. In this play, the chorus of old men first give Aristophanes exaggerated praise and then lament the way that they're treated by and overcharged by scheming lawyers. Decopolis returns and sets up a private market for the enemies of Athens. There is much caustic humour as foreigners come to trade goods, animals, daughters and other items until a messenger arrives and invites him to a party and tells Lamachus that he must go to battle. They both soon return, the soldier wounded and supported by two soldiers, the civilian by two dancing girls and drunk. All exit to continue the party except Lamachus who limps off in pain. The Knights was produced the following year and again took first prize at the Linnea and it's essentially Aristophanes taking his revenge on Cleon. Two servants run out of a house cursing their master, Demos, who has been beating them. He's fallen under the influence of Cleon, who has been using his privileged position for his own gain. They've heard that Cleon has access to oracles, so they steal these from him, thereby learning that he's destined to rule but then be superseded by a sausage seller. The sausage seller then enters and is informed of his destiny. Cleon realises that there's trouble afoot and the chorus of knights are called on to protect the others from him. They do so, giving him some rough treatment in the process. He protests and the sausage seller argues with him in rhetorical style. The chorus declares the sausage seller the winner of the debate and we pause for the parabasis. The chorus prays Aristophanes for his methodical approach to his work Praise the older generation who made Athens great, and also the horses who were key to a recent military success in Corinth. The play resumes with the sausage seller reporting his success at beating Creon in the city council, basically by offering free food to all the delegates. Creon enters and they debate their differences to Demos. The sausage seller accuses Creon of being a war profiteer and deliberately standing in the way of peace. Demos agrees and further arguments are enacted as Cleon refuses to give in. 
The sausage seller is triumphant in each case, and after a second parabasis, Demos is revealed in rejuvenated form, thanks to the sausage seller boiling him. All exit to continue the party, except Cleon, who is punished by being made to sell sausages at the city gates. The Clouds was produced in 423 BCE, but was not a success, and the version we have is a later revision. It's a play that I'll look at in some detail, so for now, just to say that it lampoons the intellectual fashions of the day and features Socrates as a major character. The Wasps was produced at the Linnea in 422 BCE, so in a lull in the war while a truce with Sparta held. The Wasps of the title refer to the Cleon-supporting jurors that the law courts were packed with and are the main target of the play. We'll also be looking at that play in more detail in a later episode. Peace was produced in 421 BCE, just before the latest peace treaty was finalised following the death of Cleon. The play involves a giant dung beetle and the freeing of Peace from the prison cell where she is being held. By doing so, the lives of tradesmen who have earned a good income for trading during the war are ruined, but farmers and peasants celebrate. Once again, the Parabasis praises the author's originality and the way he stands up to demagogues like Cleon. The play then celebrates the anticipation of a peaceful rural life, while remembering the difficulties that war placed on the ordinary citizen. It ends with the companion of peace, Harvest, being married to the main protagonist and everyone enjoying a wedding party. Like peace, the birds came second in competition. Produced in 411 BCE, it's not focused on criticism of the war and only includes more oblique references to Athenian politics and military actions. That's a little surprising, as it was staged at the time of the expedition to Sicily that effectively restarted the war. That suggests it may have been written some time before it was originally performed, while the ten-year truce was still being maintained, but there's no evidence to support this idea. The play is the story of a citizen who believes that the birds are the original gods, and he persuades them to build a city in the sky. The gods become alarmed by this and throw down challenges. These are, of course, defeated, and the protagonist is given Zeus's scepter and his girlfriend, Sovereignty. It ends with everyone leaving for the wedding celebrations. Lysistrata was produced in 411 BCE, after the disastrous defeat in Sicily, but it's not the references to war and city politics that are most notable. In his previous work, Aristophanes had always used jokes about sex and gender relations as a significant source of humour and satire, but here, gender relations and the inequality of sexual relationships are the main theme. It's a topsy-turvy world, where women try to take control, and another play that we'll be looking at in more detail in a future episode. So that's quite enough of a teaser for now. The Women Celebrating the Thesmophoria was produced in the same year as Lysistrata at the Dionysia and is similar thematically. In the play, the women of the city are angry at Euripides for the way he portrays them as sexually rapacious murderers and they plan a way to take revenge on him. Euripides appeals for an advocate and settles on his old father-in-law who then has to dress as a woman to infiltrate the women's meeting at the Festival of Fertility, the Thesmophoria of the title. The women's meeting mirrors the behaviours of the assembly as they debate their grievances. The presence of the disguised man is discovered and Euripides himself enters in various disguises to try and rescue him, becoming involved in parodies of his own plays. 
As none of these ploys work, Euripides appears as himself and agrees not to insult the women in any future plays, while they agree not to stand in his way of his father-in-law's freedom. The two men leave to celebrate that freedom. The Frogs won first prize at the Linnea Festival in 405 BCE. Written a year after the death of Euripides, it features the playwright again, and Aeschylus too, as Dionysus travels with his servant to Hades to seek out Euripides in an attempt to restore the greatness of Athenian tragedy. The frogs of the title are the chorus who croak annoyingly at Dionysius as he rows across the lake towards Hades. After some distractions, including a feast hosted by virgin dancing girls, he finds Euripides and becomes the judge of a competition between Euripides and Aeschylus to find out who is the best tragic poet. Each of the poet's best lines are weighed, and the heavier lines, delivered by Aeschylus, win. Dionysus is still undecided, and decrees that he will revive the poet who gives the best advice on the defence of Athens. Euripides offers only meaningless advice, but Aeschylus has much more practical ideas, so he is saved. His reviving and departure from Hades is celebrated, and as he leaves, he bequeaths his chair to Sophocles, not Euripides. The Assemblywomen was produced in 391 BCE and is another satire of politics and gender inequality. In the play, the women take control of the city council, something that would have been seen as outrageously impossible at the time, and commence to issue decrees banning private wealth and promoting sexual equality. For some, the play marks a significant transition from old comedy to middle comedy, as the humour is generalised rather than satiric, and structurally, the chorus only feature at the beginning and end and have no significant role. Also, there's no parabasis and very limited use of the call ode. Wealth, the final extent play, was first produced in 408 BCE and then again in 388 BCE in a revised version. When Chamoilus visits the oracle, he's told to persuade the first person he sees to come home with him. This is a blind beggar who turns out to be the god Plautus. Chamoilus helps to get Plautus' sight restored but this means that wealth will only now go to those who deserve it. The goddess Pina, or poverty, argues that poverty is a necessity, and as wealth is gained by the deserving, there is much comedy and argument that suggests she's right. The changes brought about by this in society have angered the gods, as men are no longer offering sacrifice to them, and Hermes arrives to become the servant of Chimoilus in his household. Even in this brief summary, we can see a pattern emerging both in form and content. The humour is both visual and verbal, it's often crude, scatological and sexist. The satire is mostly obvious, or would have been to the contemporary audience, and pulls no punches. People must have arrived at the theatre with huge expectations about how daring Aristophanes was going to be with his latest offering. Some criticism of Cleon must have become expected, but the switch to the satire of gender politics might have caused a more shocked reaction. As we've no other examples of comic plays, it's difficult to know if Aristophanes was part of a crowd of writers working in a similar vein, or if he was really was the colossus of his field. But thank the gods that we do have his plays. Otherwise, we would think of the ancient Greeks as a morose lot, obsessed with fate and revenge, and spending their time thinking about the cruelest ways to disfigure their enemies. Next time, 
we'll take a closer look at the clouds, and to do so, we also have to know something of the philosopher Socrates, who's a character in the play. He is a towering presence in Western philosophy, but a fairly brief summary will have to be sufficient. Hopefully, we can start to work out if these plays are still funny. I look forward to your company next time, but if you have any comments or concerns in the meantime, you can contact me by email at thoetp at gmail.com or via Twitter at thoetp. Thank you.